So this is a really interesting book and you know um while maybe I should read the flap so that uh, you know the readers uh, the listeners know what what we're going to talk about and what your book is about before we launch into our conversation yeah sure uh-huh sure In the late 19th century India played a pivotal role in creating global conversations around population and reproduction Among the questions posed by colonial administrators, nationalist eugenicists, demographers and policy makers were age at marriage and its effect on the health and the vitality of a population, how many children married uh, couples should have and how they should be raised, practices like remarriage, monogamy and celibacy and their impact on individual bodies, families and wider communities. It was these early discussions that led to the emergence of new ideas linking reproduction, population and the economy. Maitri Srinivas's detailed examination of existing scholarship from the 1870s to the 1970s, histories of marriage and birth control of ideas of population and economy as abstractions and of famine and crises of subsistence offers a compelling analysis of how reproduction became an economic question and was targeted for regulation with serious implications for women's fertility and reproductive rights so you know this thing about you know it was only when i read your book that maybe you know i didn't think about it earlier but it was only when i read your book that the history of this uh, uh you know of family planning in india kind of was revealed to me um so i mean i didn't know that that it started right in the colonial period so if you want to talk about that because you delved quite deeply into it and you know the ideas of uh, though uh, and how it emerged from um supposed concerns for famine victims in india you know a lot of it was sure uh yeah thank you for that question i think we tend to assume that the concern about uh india's population was very much or the size of india's population was very much a product of the mid 20th century and a drive yes. for post colonial development and there that's certainly not untrue but what i'm looking at in the book or i'm starting in the book to think about how the the idea that india is an overpopulated place and the idea that overpopulation is responsible for a whole host of uh social economic and even political problems dates to a much earlier period or begins you know really in the late 19th century at sort of exactly the moment when uh colonial british colonial rule really establishes itself um in the subcontinent so i wanted to start the story there in part because if we look at that moment say from the 1870s through to the 1890s or so we find that 
Indian population size was not increasing mm-hmm. in any substantial way. So the sort of exact historical moment when a lot of these concerns about population and overpopulation emerge is also the moment when population size was relatively stable. So in other words, there was no empirical basis necessarily for all of these concerns. And so that as a historian kind of got me thinking, so why were people so worried about Indian population in the 1870s and 1880s, Um, even though, you know, the, the size was relatively stable? And when I asked that question, that's sort of what got me to Think about famine, which you mentioned, um, that this was also a period in Indian history where there were many crises of subsistence, right? Uh, Mm. Periodic major famines that occurred in a society where many people, um, sort of people with little or or no land who were um, agricultural laborers, were always on the edge of subsistence. Um, Mm. And any any event uh, could lead to a massive uh, sort of subsistence crisis. And so a series Mm. of famines really rocked the subcontinent in different parts of the subcontinent from the 1870s onwards. And I I locate in these famines, actually, the the arising concern among British administrators that, in fact, their explanation for famine becomes overpopulation, that, you know, Indians are starving, Indian peasants are starving because there's too many of them, essentially. Um, And they secondly sort of look to Indian reproductive practices by which they mean things like age of marriage, especially, but also um, the universality of marriage, the idea that everyone should be married. They look at some of those practices to argue that Indian reproduction is the problem. So rather than looking at the imperial economy, right, which now historians will look back and say, actually, it was the ways in which Indian agriculture became incorporated into a British imperial system, always at a disadvantage for the farmers, um, that led to these crises of subsistence. But these British administrators, uh, instead, instead of looking to really their own regime, their own structures of economy, um, looked to Indian reproductive practices in part. And what's interesting to me is that it wasn't just British administrators um, who took up this idea, which was which had really Malthusian roots. Um, it was also uh, Indian social reformers. So the book talks about M.G. Um, Ranade, for instance, who similarly was critical of colonial economic practices, but was also critical of Indian reproductive practices and said, we need to change um, uh, the whole, in his terms, sort of Hindu system of marriage in order to make it more economically viable. So that's why I look at this early, you know, uh, late 19th century period as a way to sort of think about the very long roots of this idea. Hmm. Though, of course, uh, M.G. Ranade's uh, uh, arguments also kind of were part of the whole uh, move, you know, the Hindu reformists and all that who were just getting into the act right then, you know, the reform movements, which were also talking about family and, uh, uh, you know, the need to, um, I don't know, to raise the uh, um, the age of consent and all those issues which you also discuss uh, in that chapter. So I guess he, his concerns were kind of um, uh, uh, kind of dovetailed with that. But what I was surprised is not surprised, but you know, 
I mean, uh, uh, other scholars have said that since independence, we haven't had famines of of the kind that we'd had during the colonial period. So clearly, you know, it it, it was a sucking away of uh, um, of of at the Indian economy at that point by the colonial power that led to a lot of uh, the subsistence struggles of Indian farmers, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, um, yes, absolutely, and I think that. If we look at that sort of wider colonial political economy or the history of that colonial political economy, I mean, there were there were a number of reasons and factors that had to do with the rates of colonial taxation, with the demands of the imperial administration, um, you know, for basically it was the Indian peasantry, the Indian farmer who bankrolled not only the British administration in India, but also the military presence of the British Empire kind of across the Indian Ocean world. So they were sort of tremendous um, tax burdens placed on the peasantry. But at the same time, there was the, the massive mortality that came from those late 19th century famines was also due to an inadequacy of relief measures. So obviously, I mean, you know, no one wants to get to the stage of famine, of course, but but once once there was uh, mass starvation, there was also um, in some cases an inability and in some cases an unwillingness to provide the kind of resources that were necessary, um, the kind of state levels of relief that would have reduced mortality. So for somebody who was living in the late 19th century, somebody like Renardet, who was sort of looking around and seeing um, what was going on around him, but was not himself sort of, you know, in fear of starvation. Um, so for that kind of class of middle class reformers, they were seeing really uh, mortality rates on an unprecedented scale. And they were also seeing an unwillingness on the part of the British administration to recognize the scale and scope of that mortality. And so for mm-hmm. Runaday, the, you know, I'm glad that you brought up this question about social reform, because I think for someone like him, both of those questions sort of merged, right? I don't think he necessarily thought of the economic question as so separate from the social and cultural question, at least not in the 1870s, sort of earlier mm. in his thinking, um, because he was seeing sort of this sort of what we consider social and cultural reform. In other words, changing marriage and reproductive practices as having mm. an economic impact, right, as being able to control and curtail the size of the population in a way that would make it more economically viable. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he and and others argued that, in fact, if the colonial government didn't want to intervene in a uh, social question or potentially a religious question, they should surely intervene on the basis of, of the economy. Um, and should think about, for instance, raising the age of marriage as an economic question that would improve the sort of livelihoods of the peasant classes. Hmm. And also, you also bring out the the sort of um, the the entrenched racism of of the whole imperial, uh, uh, um, um, you know, of the whole uh, colonial enterprise. By you know, when you when you talk about how. Uh, about the color line and about how Indians were not welcome uh, as immigrants in a, in you know in a whole load of places. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that, you know, and how mm-hmm. that that was also a factor that made uh, people think look to family planning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, absolutely. So I look at part of the book looks at this sort of the interwar period, you know, the 1920s and 1930s, when this was pat, this was after this wave of great famine. So there were still questions of hunger and subsistence. Um, but in a slightly, it sort of looked slightly different, you know, by the, by the mm-hmm. 1920s and 1930s. And there was this growing movement among, uh, there was already a sort of a flow from the 19th century on of indentured labor out of India uh, to often to other British colonies. But at the same time, a number of Indian demographers and also eugenicists, and I can talk about Indian eugenics as well, but a number mm-hmm. of demographers and others were making the case that emigration could be a solution to the supposed problems of Indian population. And they mm-hmm. argued that, in fact, the uh, that the Europeans had done exactly this, which is that they had yes. uh, you know, gone around and, and colonized many parts of the world, including uh, the settler colonies like Australia and Canada um, and the United States. And so they argued that, in fact, India and, and other Indians and other Asians should be similarly involved in these processes of migration and settling land, um, often, you know, sort of ignoring the existing or indigenous peoples of that land, I have to say. Um, But in any case, they sort of made this claim uh, at a moment when, in fact, much of the world, uh, much of the British Empire and the English speaking world, at least, were sort of closing their borders to Indian migration. So mm-hmm. uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, the African-American intellectual, uh, talks about a global color line as the key problem of the 20th century. Um, that, in other words, the sort of pressures of migration and the shutting down um, of, of nation states to bringing in um, you know, non-white immigrants was going to be the sort of central dynamic of 20th century politics. And I think many of these Indians would agree that, in fact, um, this what I call the or what Du Bois and I sort of follow Du Bois and, and calling this global color line was this kind of insistence that Indians should not be allowed to migrate. And, and this, too, was, I believe, a question of reproductive politics. So, for instance, Catherine Mayo, who's an American author who wrote this very controversial book in the 1920s called Mother mm-hmm. India, that essentially argued that Indians should not have the right to self-rule. She wrote it in response to anti-colonial nationalism, um, should not have the right to self-rule because of their reproductive practices. In other words, that they were having uh, child marriages, that they were having too many children, that their child birth practices were unhygienic and unsanitary um, and sort of disease bearing. So she argued that Indian reproductive practices meant that um, Indians should, one, remain under the control of the British, and that secondly, Indian migration posed a kind of health threat, as she saw it, uh, around Mm -hmm. the world. And so that she argued for sort of the closing of American borders uh, to Indian immigration, which actually did happen right around that time. Yes, Yes. So, and and there's this uh, there's this real undercurrent of f- the fear of contamination, right? In 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 whatever she's saying, it's like uh, mm-hmm. even in the excerpts that you read, it's uh, it's clearly. I mean, maybe for that time it was normal, but uh, it's quite repugnant when you read it now. And I can imagine why uh, Indians would have been quite enraged coming across this, uh, you know, this book. 
and her views and and you talk about their reactions as well and how it led to uh, uh to, to the evolution of certain ideas but what i was struck was uh, how you talk about feminism's connection to family planning rested less upon its claim to challenge patriarchy or women's subordination than its claim to bring women, poor women's reproductive lives more firmly into the embrace of the development state so let's talk about that because you 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 speak about all these you know middle class volunteers who go in and in the 50s and 60s and try to convince uh, women you know poorer women uh, village women to uh, uh, to get sterilized and to adopt uh, contraception so let's talk about that yes so i think there's a there's a long history of the indian women's movement's involvement in these questions around population and reproduction that eventually become uh india's family planning regime so mm-hmm. we can start even in the 1930s and 1940s when uh the indian women's movement so i'm thinking here sort of the mainstream of the movement like the all india women's conference uh mm-hmm. that those activists believed very strongly as did indian uh nash congress party essentially nationalists at the time that uh the 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 big thing that was going to happen with the end of colonial rule was true economic development right so no more of these famines and these crises of subsistence um no more sort of what was called underdevelopment but in fact that um that nationalists were going to develop the nation and and the indian women's movement saw um control of population is a key part of that process of economic development. So uh they really lobbied after 1947 to bring uh family planning into national planning. Mm-hmm. Um so in this era of the you know the sort of five year plans for economic development, family planning emerged in the very first plan, uh the very first uh five year plan. Thanks in large measure to a number of advocates including for example Danvanti Ramarao um who was a founding member of the Family Planning Association of India and she had previously been uh the head of the All India Women's Conference and represented herself you know as a sort of figure within the women's movement and so she and others made the case that you know to bring women into development um in the new nation that what was really needed was an attention to family planning um and so it became a kind of development that was to be undertaken by middle class women for mm-hmm. or supposedly for uh sort of subaltern women um poor women uh rural peasant women um dalit and adivasi women and so this was sort of the the setup even behind as early as the first five year plan and certainly that continued right so the indian government um funded uh contraceptive research but also outreach and propaganda to sort of spread the message of family planning and a lot of middle class women worked as volunteers within that campaign in a kind of attempt to sort of reach out to you know those that they saw as their kind of poor sisters and i put that in scare quotes you know yes. um to sort of bring them the knowledge and information about family planning but of course where that started to fall apart was that there that that many of the women who were the targets of their outreach in the 50s and 60s 
were not necessarily interested in family planning, <laughs> or certainly not in curtailing the number of children to just two, um, or possibly three. And so a lot of the book spends time sort of looking at the tensions between these middle class women who, who argue that what they're doing is a campaign for women's development, and kind of the lack of interest or refusal that they they keep coming across, which is not to say that these uh, these women who were the targets of their message were uninterested in reproductive autonomy or control. I don't think we can say that, but rather mm-hmm. that the assumption that these middle class women were coming in with you know that the only that, that that the only means towards prosperity for an individual family was to control the me- the number of children and that somehow and this is a very old colonial idea that simply by controlling the number of children one's going to attack the question of poverty um which i think we know to be false um they they were sort of unwilling to go along with that with that logic mm-hmm. yeah from this you know from this vantage point i mean I, right now when I, when you know one looks back at this uh, it just seems to me that perhaps uh, you know uh, the middle class women had internalized uh, the whole colonial idea about uh, you know about overpopulation and about the need to need to uh, uh, to govern these bodies i guess yes i think so um and i think that and that's part of this story about why it's such a long and deeply held and deeply rooted idea and and you know middle class women and middle class feminists were not the only ones right there was a huge um growth of uh, Indian social scientists and demographers who were making this argument, as were the sort of quote unquote experts of international development, many of whom came from the United States, such as from the Ford Foundation um, mm. or the U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, who were also making this argument that the only way forward for Indian economic development was through uh, family planning through curtailing and controlling reproduction. And so in that sense, the Indian women's movement both propelled and also joined at a growing scientific consensus um, that this was the sole or most important, uh, or at least one of the important ways forward for, for Indian development. But it, but it retained from the colonial period the same Malthusian or Neo-Malthusian idea that population was in itself responsible for poverty and that controlling reproduction was the means to economic growth. And we know um, from the history eventually that that these plans were, were not successful, um, either in promoting growth or in controlling population. Um, but it was but it was an idea that was was really widely shared across a, a, a variety of kind of political spheres. Hmm. And it's also interesting to note that subaltern women were not so easily swayed. And and this bit about how since children in these households produced more than they consumed from an early age, and since adult children provided the only available form of care and support for the elderly, large families were a rational choice for many agrarian Mm -hmm. households. So so it's kind of obvious why they didn't want to adopt these methods. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think, you know, I, I like to it's I like to always start as a historian from the assumption that the the majority of people um, understand their own interests, at least the majority of the time. And so mm-hmm. I was, you know, I think to sort of take seriously the the rejection or the questioning that keeps emerging, you know, among the targets of family planning and to try to understand where that comes from. 
um, is really key, but it's difficult to find, or I found it difficult to find in the archives. And so I wound up just sort of trying to find those voices through uh, the family planner's own records, right? Um, and sort of mm-hmm. their moments of frustration where mm-hmm. they feel that they're sort of bringing something valuable to, to women who are then turning around and saying, no, they don't want them. Um, and so they record those moments of opposition and frustration. Hmm. And the women actually asking for uh, for health care, improved health care for their for their children who for the children that they already have, and clearly the absence of that is what troubles them, right? Yes, yes, and and that's I think still true. You know that by the nineteen sixties, the Indian government started making some really uh, sort of problematic decisions, often with the support of international organizations um, mm-hmm. as well, to uh, sort of separate maternal and child health from family planning budgets and to increase the financial or government state support um, for family planning, uh, sometimes at the expense of maternal and child health. And so this was a this was a decision that was enabled by this narrative of crisis, because by the 1960s, there was the the sense that the world faced this population explosion, that India was a sort of central focus of this so-called population bomb, right? So just as in the Mm. 1920s when Catherine Mayo in Mother India saw India as sort of a really dangerous place globally, similarly by the 1960s, Indian population growth kind of rendered India on a world stage as a a sort of a problem for the future of the planet. And so this narrative of crisis, of population crisis, really drives forward increasingly draconian measures uh, in India to control population. Mm-hmm. And this is when we start to see sort of real elements of coercion in the family planning um, regime. But that narrative of crisis, you know, s- sort of enables uh, this this sort of single-minded attention to controlling population at the expense of um, something like health, but also, uh, you know, uh, controlling rates of infant mortality, um, support for pregnant people. I mean, all of that becomes secondary to this kind of relentless drive to encourage, you know, first the use of IUDs um, and then, you know, surgical sterilization. Hmm. The issue of the emergency wasn't really uh, um, an aberration in its sterilization programs and that it had been building up to that, even though the, the um, you, you know, the suspension of other uh, other rights during the emergency happened and it was a shocking event. But this, you know, everybody, like you point out, everybody thinks of the emergency and they think of Nasbandi. True, mm-hmm. you think of sterilization, especially of men. But what I found interesting was that how uh, I, I didn't know that there were far more, uh, uh, you know, vasectomies than there were sterilizations of women during the, the emergency. So let's talk about that. Sure. So I think, you know, you know, when I when I was working on this book, you know, and I would say this is what I'm writing about. Everyone would say, oh, you're writing about the emergency. And I, I do, I do write about the emergency, but I think one of the sort of the historical memory uh, that, that we have in India of the emergency is exactly as you were saying is, is of aberration, right? Was this period. And it was an, an aberration in many ways, including in its family planning programs. And, and while I, you know, certainly the emergency was an aberration in some ways, 
actually in the in the sort of family planning arena, much of what happened in the emergency continued what had already been occurring through the 1950s and especially the 1960s and early 70s. So the the idea of these mass sterilization camps um, that that are, became so notorious in during the emergency period actually were happening through the 1960s. These were for men, so these were vasectomy camps. Um, mm-hmm. They got their start especially in you know um, Kerala and Tamil Nadu. So they were really more southern state mm-hmm. practices initially um, that kind of spread across the rest of the country. Where the idea again, sort of going back to this question about the population bomb as crisis, right? Sort of um, justifying all kinds of emergency interventions interventions on a large scale, this is what mm-hmm. those vasectomy camps were supposed to be. And so mm-hmm. all of those elements and also the surgical sterilization, sort of tubal ligation uh, for women, those were also going in an earlier period. So really the emergency sort of when it kind of uh, accelerates its population um, control campaigns depends on ideas and infrastructures that were already created by the 1960s. So what's different, I think, in the emergency, one is the uh, the broader structures of coercion that were in place, uh, especially in Delhi and in, and in certain other places, right? So that now family planning, you know, having to produce a certificate that you've been sterilized becomes necessary to access any number Mm -hmm. of social services. Um, So the sort of broader structure of coercion of the emergency influences the family planning campaign. But those structures had had already existed. I think the other difference is an increasing turn towards men uh, and towards vasectomy uh, Mm -hmm. over forms of intervention um, on women's bodies. And this was due, I think, in part to the failure of the IUD or IUCD campaign during the Mm -hmm. 1960s. Um, So that was one reason there was a growing turn towards men and men's bodies. Um, I think possibly there were others as well. It was a quicker uh, procedure medically and so on. And so that also with the end of the emergency, um, there's a there's a massive switch, right? That the coercive uh, tactics of the emergency are correctly condemned, um, but they get associated with just sort of the sterilization for men and the sterilizations for women and the coercive underpinnings of those are less questioned. And so post-emergency, you see in India kind of ongoing and continuing emphasis on uh, sterilization for women. And it's the vasectomy that gets seen as the aberration. Um, yes. And so many of the logics of you know, family planning, sort of coercive family planning in the emergency kind of continue on, you know, even after the end of the emergency period. Hmm. But it's not commented on so much now because it's women's bodies. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Which have always been with the potential exception of the emergency and and some other uh, the sterilization camps for men in the 1960s. With that exception, you know, it has been sort of women's bodies on the line all the way from the you know, from the 19th century and certainly from the interwar period onward, that it has always been seen as sort of women's responsibility to control their reproduction and women's bodies that need to sort of suffer from or face these interventions in order to do so. Hmm. So really, I mean, the emergency was only different in in that perhaps there were more men be going through sterilizations than, than women. 
Yes. And, and, you know, in an even more coercive environment. Right. Yeah. Um, so that there were there were measures of coercion that existed even before. Um, and these measures of coercion, I would add, don't necessarily only have to be, you know, sort of someone like rounding you up to to go get sterilized, which is something that happened during the emergency, right? And, and we have documentation mm. of this. But other yeah. methods of coercion existed throughout this period. So for example, you know, even a system of sort of targets and incentives, you know, where government employees have to secure a certain number of people to become sterilized, that's open to all manner of, you know, social, economic, and, and other kinds of coercions, right? That that tend to accrue at the lowest levels of society. So every Everyone with social power um, is able to sort of look to the next to the next lower level to exert that yes. power uh, yes. within coercive circumstances. Similarly, you know, there's there's studies that that show that in periods of subsistence crises, um, that that more people would come forward to become sterilized, uh, both men and women, if there was a financial incentive. So again, here we can say that that financial incentive serves as a certain kind of coercion, right? That if people are are uh, thinking that their only way to access subsistence, um, food, etc., in a moment of crisis is through quote unquote volunteering themselves for sterilization, that itself is a kind of coercive process as well. Yes. Yes. Of course. Your book is, uh, I mean, it's a serious book and, you know, one doesn't feel laughing anywhere. But at this point, when he said, despite family planners' best efforts, he wrote glumly, this is, uh, this is one Ford Foundation consultant. It is considerably easier to demonstrate the benefits of fertilizer than a vasectomy. <laughs> 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 you know, some of the comments by these consultants and by the family planning workers, you can see their frustration with uh, with the answers that they get and their interactions with people who don't clearly want to be, you know, sterilized or don't want to have this, uh, you know, to, to take this option. So. Yes. No, thank you for pulling out that quote. I, I wanted to make sure it was in the book because I also laughed. Uh, <laughs> You know, I also laughed when I read it, and I think it points to uh, a kind of unwillingness on the part of. So this was, I think, a Ford Foundation administrator, and the Ford Foundation, and you know, had you know, was one of the earliest funders of many of these family planning campaigns, and you know, it kind of points to and um, and uh, these these sort of development. You know, quote unquote, experts were were really wedded to the idea that that reproduction was the problem. That pop, you know, that, mm -hmm. that people were having too many children, and this was the core economic concern for India. And so, mm -hmm. whenever they came across oppositional viewpoints, um, whether it was a farmer, you know, more interested in fertilizer as part of the Green Revolution or whatever, um, they sort of refused to see. Um, they sort of refuse to see the, the logic of that. Um, and so there's this constant drive, this constant push. And the reason I think that this pro, that these family planning programs were so open to coercion was this kind of growing desperation of a sense of these so-called experts feeling convinced that they had a solution that people just were unwilling or uninterested in following. And so they came up with increasingly uh, sometimes coercive, sometimes just odd and bizarre uh, attempts to try to curtail fertility. You know, there's another Ford Foundation expert um, who at one time sort of wished for a contraceptive that could be sprayed from 
airplanes, you know, um, so that you don't you take out the question of, of voluntariness or people's choice completely out of the picture. Now, there was no serious research program, you know, to find such a contraceptive, but thank goodness. But like the fact that it was even a desire, you know, yes. that we could completely eliminate individual people's choices um, in this process, I think is pretty telling. Yes. I'm just wondering how come you mentioned this about how uh, I think is that famous quote about prosperity being the best contraceptive. Is it prosperity mm-hmm. or something? Uh, mm-hmm. Development. Development yeah. is the best contraceptive. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So how come these guys didn't see that, you know, and, and uh, you know, and the government, I, I keep wondering that because if there's proper health care and if we were, you know, if we, if we were tackling these basic things, you know, things at the basic level mm-hmm. it would eliminate suffering on so many other levels, right? It would have. Yes. I mean, that's absolutely right. And so the question of um, why was that argument so hard to make? I, it's hard, you know, it's hard to know, but I think one of the, one of the things I look at in the book is the appeal of this, this vision that, you know, solving reproduction is the fix is it, I think it's appealing for a number of reasons, but one is it enables, uh, it's a vision that suggests that you can address the problems of poverty without addressing, uh, social and economic inequality, Mm -hmm. right? That you can Mm -hmm. simply through, you know, you can solve the problem of poverty supposedly if poor people have fewer children rather than, for example, tackling the very deep roots of economic inequality, um, in India as, as globally, right. That are, that are linked to, you know, uh, existing hierarchies around, uh, caste for instance, but also linked to, and these are, this is connected of course, right. To unequal distribution of land, um, Mm. and so on. And so, it becomes, I think that population control becomes a kind of poverty alleviation program that mm. requires or asks almost nothing of those mm. who are in positions of power and privilege um, in that society. So it mm. becomes a means to avoid really tackling what, uh, you know, so Ambedkar at the time of the uh, of drafting the Indian constitution, for example, talks about how Indian democracy is always going to be fragile and precarious as long mm-hmm. as there's no sort of belief in either equality um, or unity, right? It's a critique about caste yes. and it's a critique of sort of the economic uh, deprivations of the poor. And, you know, so he, he makes this call for like, what is a, a truly a more fundamental form of, of democracy? And mm-hmm. the the family planning stuff is just is not the only one, but it's just it's one example of sort of completely avoiding the kind of questions that, you know, someone like Ambedkar was asking um, so that rather than um, going after sort of power or privilege or sort of pushing for something like land redistribution or land reform, um, instead, it just it, the, the, the campaigns increasingly just sort of focus on the reproductive bodies of, of poor people. Um, and so I think, you know, 
even, you know, the the uh, the minister who had said uh, the minister of family planning who had said, you know, development is the best contraceptive. Um, you know, this 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 was an argument that would have occasionally kind of come up in certain policymaking circles, but would always become sort of subsumed under what was seen as the so-called easier approach of simply, you know, trying to control or curtail reproduction rather than making fundamental social change. Hmm. Hmm. And, you know, like I was saying before we started, you know, recording about how growing up in India, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s, one just internalized this thing, the whole uh, idea of the two-child, two, two uh, you know, of the, the ideal family had, hum do hamare do, you know, you quote, the, mm-hmm. you quote that in English, like, you know, our, two children and, you know, hum do hamare do, meaning two, us two and our two, you know. Mm-hmm. So that, that was the, the popular slogan that we, uh, uh, th- that was everywhere. And like you said, mm-hmm. you know, on buses and elephants carrying it everywhere. <laughs> and you saw it on television and, and it was ingrained. And it was only in adulthood and when you're exposed to other cultures that one realized that this wasn't the way the whole world thought. So clearly this family planning program was very successful in brainwashing us. I mean, brainwashing is a negative thing to say, but in its propagandistic, uh, uh, you know, it was a success. Yes. I mean, I think at least among, you know, certain social groups, right, yes. who yes. who yes. saw this message. And I think um, because, the you know, the as I discuss in the last chapter of the book, you know, this, this sort of we too are too hamdo hamaredo message, like, proliferated, you know, across all of these public spaces. And I've been, you know, and in terms of, you know, billboards or on trains or in, you know, every, every sort of possible uh, place that could be used to perpetuate this. And now, in fact, if I look back at some of my own like childhood photographs and stuff, you know, I'll see in the background always, you know, it's like if some sort of like family photo. And then in the background, you'll see like a billboard, you know, with this humdo hamare do message. Like it, it's really... It's really all over. And I think that, too, is is sort of a, a kind of, you know, individualizing or individuating development. Right. And suggesting that a particular individual behavior is, is, is what's going to make the difference between uh, individual reproductive behavior between sort of poverty and prosperity. Um, and, and puts forward a particular model of the family um, that I talk about as you know, sort of necessarily heterosexual that has a particular vision about um, planning and the future that links its own intimate behaviors to the planning regime of the state. I I think there was a really kind of powerful message that really kind of saturated visual landscapes in India to to make that case. And, And certainly it's not one that has disappeared. I mean, I think this is still a really powerful idea. We still see it around in a lot of places, even when, you know, the the fertility rate in India has gone down, that there is no population explosion. We're still finding, for example, you know, with the UP population bill for one, you know, which was drafted after this, after the book was written, but, um, but very much kind of echoes uh, this, this the same logics that we have been seeing, you know, for well over a hundred years. So I think that idea still has a very long life. Yes. And even now, I mean, you know, there's a real revulsion 
for people who don't conform to this you know and even if you have like three children i i'm talking about i'm i'm not talking just about middle class people uh, you know educated lettered people even you know even even people from the working class who adopt who ad- adopted this norm okay so there is a revulsion to people who don't conform to this you know um, mm-hmm. who don't conform to the two child uh, thing and which has caused which has caused things like you know uh, uh, the the skewed sex ratio and mm-hmm. you don't know what else is going to happen in the future as the population mm-hmm. gets older but but, but uh, you know that's something we'll see i guess as the years roll on Yeah, I mean I think there's, you know, in the kind of epilogue to the book, one of the things I I was interested in is to what extent, you know, this message sort of really kind of permeates and I think it it does. I mean, part of the the part of the epilogue, you know, is based on these sort of oral history interviews with uh rural women in, in Tamil Nadu and um I was interested in how the message really permeates but it's not necessarily exactly the message that comes from the state you know so I was interested in sort of the kind of the hamdo hamare do vision is you know if only one restricted one's reproduction then you would become prosperous and and yes. in some of the oral history interviews that we did I I it was it was about how that this kind of restriction whether it's two children or three children or or one um is is a necessity because of the failures of development right because yes. of the inability um for ordinary people to to be able to summon the resources to to take care of of more than that number of children so i think it's true that this message has permeated but but just as in the past i think people are kind of making sense of it in their own terms right and and sort of yes. recognizing um that it's not it's it's not the ticket to prosperity per se but perhaps it's just the demand you know as a result of some of the the failures of the development state to really sort of bring prosperity yes yes one one of those women say, says that i mean like how she, her parents had so many children and she had four and then she decided to stop and she doesn't expect her daughters to have more than two because how can you how can you guarantee them a good future and a good life mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. what a lot of people think and which is true mm-hmm. because you can't depend on you know if your livelihood is always in a state of flux i mean how can you mm-hmm. you you can you know expect to right in life. these situations of precarity i think that you know people make the choices that they feel they need to make so in a way you know uh when we look at the the women from the 1950s and 60s who are saying you know having many children is our measure of security in a society yes. that doesn't provide other social welfare measures um i think some some people of course still say that but now we're sort of hearing these growing voices saying these are our choices in a situation of precarity where um where we don't have these other measures or guarantees and so these are the choices that we have to make yes what do you think around this is just a question i'm posing to you what do you think like as we see you know uh, with the hindsight of all these years you know we can look back at the emergency and um, and we can look back at colonialism and you know but going forward maybe 20 years from now do you think we'd look back and say that you know uh, the continuing emphasis on small families is going to have an effect as the population ages you know or at least parts of the population which has 
chosen to limit their family size as they grow older you know it's going to have as uh, as like the places like japan have had you know mhm yeah that's a that's a interesting question and i think i i see that it it comes up you know in in india at times you know when people raise these questions about family planning and i think i mean it's hard to say I, obviously the age structure of a population in other words how many young people there are as a comparison to how many old people older people there are you know it certainly matters and it changes societies and there's many parts of the world japan for instance but also china yeah. um that are facing these concerns in a much more immediate sense than than in the indian case i don't yeah. i don't really have an answer except to say that you know so yes i think it's going to lead to the need for certain kinds of changes and social welfare supports for the elderly and i think those are going to become really important but i i would say maybe from a historical perspective that the previous notions or previous fears around crisis um you know whether it's a population explosion right from the 1960s or now this growing concern of like uh, you know a growing uh, elderly population i think these notions of crisis have often served as a way to obscure or turn attention away from some of the other more fundamental social and economic reforms that have to take place regardless um mm-hmm. so i think that if we that that just looking at sort of population structure right age structure alone is is not enough i think it's it's necessary to think about what are the sort of fundamental changes that need to occur to have a more um fair and just society um that that doesn't leave so many of its population whether that's elderly or the children in either case vulnerable and so i think that the the population structure in and of itself is not going to determine anything it's it's going to be how societies deal with that changing structure okay great okay so uh, so it's been a really enjoyable i mean it's been a, a an interesting conversation um and and for the readers go out and get reproductive politics in the making of modern india by maithili shrinivas it's not an easy read but it's really um it it throws light on a lot of things especially as indians that we've assumed you know uh, about families about the family planning program and 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 you know one thought that one was uh brainwashed in a sense <laughs> while reading the book i i thought that yes i mean i, I my suspicion was true <laughs> kind of confirmed it <laughs> well good then the book has done its job right it i i want us to question the things that we thought we knew yes. um and to so exactly that that's wonderful to hear that it, that it raised those questions thank you so much for joining me on this you know for talking yeah Thank you. It was really delightful. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.